Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Friday, the 3rd of December. I want to highlight, and I'll make my point for why in just a moment, uh, that is, this is the year 2021. It's almost the year 2022, but it's still the year 2021. Why do we demarcate time in this way? We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but you know, hold that hold that question in your mind. Uh, a couple of headlines here as we start out today. Uh, New York City has issued a vaccine mandate for religious and private school workers. The New York Times lead in this story says New York City will require employees at yeshivas, Catholic schools, and other private schools to be vaccinated against the coronavirus in what is believed to be the largest effort in the nation to force religious schools to adhere to a vaccine mandate. Uh, I lift that up to you because that is going to be a topic of conversation among those who are concerned about religious freedom, religious liberty, and, you know, the health and welfare of um, of the people of the country. And so that's it's going to be a conversation. And so let's be people that are prepared to enter into that conversation in a way that's faithful and doesn't just look out for our own welfare, but the welfare of others. All right. The 11th School Board Association across the country has now voted to leave the uh, national School Boards Association. So you, this whole conversation um, arises out of uh, the labeling of parents as quote-unquote domestic terrorist parents um, saying, you know, hey, we have every right to influence what is being taught in our schools. It's a larger conversation, not only about um, critical race theory, which is something that you will hear people say, nobody's teaching critical race theory in schools. So here's the underlying part of that conversation. If the people who are teaching everything are people who are teaching out of a worldview um, that is structured around critical race theory, then critical race theory is being taught because the people doing the teaching are operating out, out of that theory. And so when we talk about teachers being the curriculum, we talk about this all the time. We talk about discipleship. We talk about teaching Sunday school or the way that we influence people generation to generation. We are the curriculum. It's not about going uh, out and getting, you know, the best, hottest new discipleship curriculum that's out there. It's about being a disciple, um, having your life so patterned after the life of Christ, having your mind so conformed, uh, so transformed by the Word of God that your life becomes conformed by the active work of the Holy Spirit to who Christ is. You become the curriculum. Okay, the same is true in every classroom in America and around the world. Uh, Children are learning the teacher. They're, I mean, you know, they're learning content, but they're learning the teacher. They're learning the pattern of life. They're learning um, the person. 
They're learning the character qualities. They're learning the language. They're learning the pattern of speech. I mean, that's why little kids who were learning online um, during COVID lockdowns and who were being taught by uh, teachers with a British accent all of a sudden, even though they were little American kids, had British accents. Like that, we we learn the teacher. So um, so that's going on in Alabama. Uh, the Alabama School Board Association has become the 11th school board association in the country to leave the National School Board Association over um, this larger conversation. Uh, this is an interesting international headline that I'll tee up really quickly. Uh, a World War II-era bomb exploded at a construction site in Munich on Wednesday. <laughs> okay, that's just stunning. We've got stuff buried all over the world from things that took place in the past And so I'm going to use that as my segue into uh, how things that happened in the past affect the present day. And that brings me to the date on the calendar. There is uh, a birth and a life and a death that so profoundly affected history that we mark time by it. When we consider how the events of the past affect the present day, the date on the calendar reminds us that the life and the death of one man so continue to so profoundly affect the present that we actually mark time by his death. This is, in fact, the year of the Lord, 2021, and his name is Jesus. We are preparing to celebrate his first advent at Christmas. All right, we're going to turn our attention to some other international uh, headlines and how those international headlines affect us here at home. In order uh, to do that, We are going to have Elizabeth Newman join us again. She's going to help us look at what in the world is going on in the world and how we see things in terms of our own threat, like what threatens us. So ask yourself that question. Who do I feel like has America or the United States in its crosshairs? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Newman is a former DHS assistant secretary for counterterrorism. She served in both the Bush and Trump administrations. She is the, a national security analyst at ABC News um, and a board member for the National Immigration Forum. Um, on and on and on. Uh, Elizabeth Newman is, uh, is a person who I trust as a sister in Christ uh, to help us understand what in the world is going on in the world. Elizabeth, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me, Carmen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Um, Okay, so I would love for us to take a moment to look at um, this this poll, this survey that has been reported on this week from the Reagan National Defense Survey asking Americans like, you know, when you think about it, what do you view as the greatest threat? And it says that most Americans view China, not Russia or any other country, as the top threat currently facing the United States. When you think about threat assessment, is China at the top of the list? Absolutely. Um, I was actually really pleased to see this because, uh, you know, a lot of the work that I do tends to be homeland focused, and there are a lot of threats that we need to be worried about, um, like domestic terrorism and cybersecurity. But when you look strategically at what our biggest challenge is from a long-term perspective, it is China. And so often um, the news of the day tends to focus on the, the immediate threats 
So it's good to see that uh, a large swath of Americans seem to understand that our biggest strategic threat is China, and, and it crosses the gambit on everything from we are heavily reliant on their money. They own a lot of our debt. We're heavily reliant on them for our um, con consumer goods. We've, we've seen the challenges of supply chain. Um, and then, you know, a very prescient uh, challenge right now in the, the um, uh, fight over Taiwan, um, you know, issues around um, how do you hold China accountable um, for the genocide that's uh, happening with the Uyghur population. It's, it's a very complex set of issues and the tools that we usually use to um, compel a bad state to do the right thing don't quite work as well with China because they have such economic prowess and they're very strategic in how they leverage their power. Okay, you surfaced a number of things there, all of which are also on my list. Um, I am concerned of the failure of Congress to act on Senator Marco Rubio's bill that would bring you know greater economic pressure on China to end the genocide of the Uyghur people. I am um, in very interested in the news that uh, Samsung is going to bring some critical supply chain production to America, um, a $17 billion chip-making factory due to be uh, built in Texas, and this summit of democracy related to Taiwan. So, you know, pick any of those you want to. Help us pull a thread here related to China. Um, well, I, I saw the news about uh, the Taylor, Texas um, plant, and I grew up in Texas, and I went to school in Austin, so I was uh, really excited to see um, another win for the state of Texas. They they are booming. We have a lot of um, corporations moving plants there, but aside from, uh, you know, yay for Texas, uh, it, it's really, really important that we start to onshore Again, a lot of things we offshored about 20, 30 years ago, uh, we've, we're seeing this firsthand, right? Like that it's great that we're global. It's great that um, uh, economies, uh, efficiencies were, were able to be gained from um, being able to develop certain things in different parts of the world. But from a national security perspective, we still need the ability to have um, core things produced here in the United States when we have a, a bad day or a bad year like we've had with COVID. Um, and, and certainly the chip shortage is affecting us, um, our day-to-day -day lives. I, and if anybody's tried to buy a car recently or repair a dishwasher, or repair anything that has um, a chip, it's, it's massively slow right now. So we have um, you know, a, a real impact in our daily lives, but you know, okay, great. So we can't buy the car we want right away. That's not the end of the world, but imagine um, that kind of disruption also occurring in our military supply chain or in other national security spaces. That does become a problem in being able to keep us safe. So it's really important that we prioritize being able to build some of these key uh, uh, commodities here in the United States. And the Democracy Summit, you know, I was, I, that's that's good on, on the Biden administration. Like, that's kind of provocative, although, you know, China has been extremely provocative in their flyovers of Taiwan, increasingly moving into their airspace. Um, you know, I, this indicates that they are maybe changing the way in which we in, uh, approach the one China policy. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that it's going to be absolutely transparent to us as to what the end game is here, because that's part of 
when you're dealing with a strategic player like China, you need to keep the, clark- the cards close to the vest. But um, it, it definitely will uh, uh, send a str- is sending a strong signal to China um, uh, that we we take it seriously, um, being able to protect uh, the, the people of Taiwan um, and their their rights to to freedom. So I, I was pleased to see that. Okay, we have to take a very brief brief break. Um, Elizabeth Newman is going to continue with us. We're going to turn to to some domestic issues here in just a moment. But for those of you who were thinking that chip production was already uh, literally a hot potato in Pennsylvania, yeah, but that's a different kind of chip. The potatoes are grown in Idaho. The chips (laughs) are made in Pennsylvania. We'll be right back. When we talk about the Department of Homeland Security, we're talking about keeping the United States safe here at home. Elizabeth Newman is an expert in this area. Um, she she joins us, I'm hoping, on a regular basis going forward. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about um, threats of domestic, uh, domestic threats here at home. Uh, my attention and your attention as well were turned toward Michigan and a school shooting. What do you see there in, you know, in terms of that? That young man has been charged with um, with terrorism in addition to uh, being you know, charged with the with the murder of his schoolmates. Talk, talk with us about what's happening there from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, goodness, I hate that we um, we seem to be having these every other week. Um, if you look at uh, the statistics on gun violence, there is a pretty significant uptick over the last five years on, on um, mass shootings, as well as, uh, you know, shootings involving one or two people, mass shootings tend to be three or more. Um, and it's every time we go through this, it's heartbreaking. And we almost get a fatigue, right? Because we we see the headlines, you're like, oh, again, it's happening again. But um, when you pause and you actually listen to um, the parents or the teachers describe, like, it, it should break your heart. And it should cause us to um, fall on our knees and, and, and ask for help. We, we have a sickness in this country. We have, um, we have too many people who think that the answer, uh, is, um, uh, to, to kill others or to go out in a blaze of glory uh, knowing that they're likely to get killed themselves. Um, and, uh, and it's just, um, continuing to get worse. And, and we, I, I, I wish, at least, um, look, there's all sorts of co- conversations, policy conversations about gun control and should we have school resource officers? And, and in this case, it did help that there was somebody on site to, to quickly, um, it could have been much worse if they didn't have somebody there quickly, uh, some police officers intervening. But, um, you know, it, I, I do feel like we need to have a conversation as a, a faith community um, what, to understand, like, what can we be doing uh, to minister to uh, teens and young adults who tend to be the the perpetrators of these um, attacks, um, and in particular, we, what there are early indications that the uh, there were people in the school, students in the school, that knew something was going to happen, and it appears mm-hmm. that nobody reported it. And and there are probably a lot of reasons for this. This is not at all blaming the victims. Um, uh, but we need to figure out how we help bystanders who are the ones that are most likely to to detect that something is wrong with somebody. Uh, we, we need to figure out how to help bystanders feel safe 
and and responsible for reporting if they think something's going to happen because um, we want to prevent this and and the only way to prevent it is to intervene earlier in the process um it, it's you know once the shooting has started it, you know it's uh even even though that that law enforcement officer was able to um, intervene quickly and, and reduce loss of life. That's there were still people that lost their life and there were still people that were injured and are going to be living with the ramifications of it for the rest of their life. So we, we just, uh, I would love to see, and, and I'm probably um, not connecting dots well for, um, for the audience, but uh, what we know about attackers is that the, the drivers that motivate them to go out, carry out that attack often have nothing to do with ideology and, and there's other things that are going on in their life um, that make them feel unanchored, that make them feel um, like they've lost a sense of uh, uh, belonging or a loss of, of identity and meaning in life. And that's, that's where I think like, doesn't the church have an answer for this? I mean, mm-hmm. our, our faith, the gospel, that is the answer here. This is a heart problem and we are equipped to address those heart problems. And so I'd love to see the church um, uh, figure out how to to be more involved in helping um, this this illness that's taken our country. All right. So, Elizabeth, that brings to mind a conversation I had with Kara Powell. She writes on issues um, related to young people and the church. The book is Three Big Questions. If you're listening right now and you remember that conversation, um, she talked about the three big questions and how young people feel unanchored and the answer of the church related to identity, belonging, and purpose. And so, you know, let's just be the people who don't just listen, but then we actually engage with the information and carry it out there. Like, let's be engaging with people that we encounter in the next generation. Don't be afraid of them. Uh, actually engage them. Talk to them. They're just teenagers. Um, <laughs> all right. I, yeah. I love so that. We, That's great. Um, on a national security conversation, I, I mean, I, we don't have time to talk about what's going on with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Belarus is also in the news today. But I'd love for you to make a few comments about the Omicron um, variant and national security. Is there, mm. you know, when we when we talk about this topic, I just feel like there's this rising I mean, you talk about why people don't say what's going on in their communities. It's it, this is a part of it, too. Like people don't want to report on each other about anything. And mm-hmm. this is this is aggravating that this whole covid thing is aggravating that conversation. Um, there, I mean, there's no doubt that historians will look back. Social scientists will look back and look at covid as like such a massive disruption that caused so much anxiety, so many security problems. Um Look, I think we're at this point in the pandemic where, um, and and maybe the president tried to do this yesterday. I I, I don't know if the the messaging really um, uh, was it maybe as strong as it needed to be. But somebody, we need somebody in the government to say, okay, um, we're at a different place than we were 18 months ago, and and though we still need to be vigilant, and we especially need to protect those who are at risk. Um, we have medical countermeasures to um, you know, address this disease early on. We have testing, we have vaccines. And so the way in which we need to be dealing with this is going to look different than it did 18 months ago. And instead, and I don't put this on the, the administration as much as just the media and, and the way that they tend to 
uh, love a crisis. Um, instead, the news we got, you know, the day after Thanksgiving is like, oh my gosh, yet another variant, and we're all going to have to go into lockdown again. That's not helpful because <laughs> that's one we didn't know. Um, and what we know now about Omicron is it does appear to be more transmissible, um, but maybe not as severe. And if you know anything about virus history, like the Spanish influenza over 100 years ago, that's how it died out, is that it becomes mm-hmm. more transmissible, but less virulent. And that was that would actually be a good thing. I mean, I mean nobody wants to get sick, but if it's like the, the a common cold, then it's not that big of a deal. Um, and meanwhile, there are massive debates happening right now in the middle of the country, especially about these vaccine mandates really impacting people's livelihoods, people making really tough decisions about whether or not to quit their jobs because they have a a fundamental um, reason, um, whether I agree with their reason or not, um, to not want to be vaccinated. And, And that individual liberty piece is a strong part of who our country is. And so I feel like the government needs to do a better job of recognizing the moment that we're in. It is not where we were a year ago. I think the situation has changed. We have better countermeasures. We have better medical insights. And and though we we do, I, I would love for the church to to get back to the place. And you you mentioned it, Carmen, at the beginning, like part of our responsibility is not just our individual liberty, but how we love others who might be at risk. Um, and and that might how we do that might look different for each of us, but um, I, I would love for us to also be as passionate about protecting others as we seem to be uh, about protecting our rights. Um, but the the government needs to change the conversation too. And, I, and then I think we can find a more of a healthy compromise for how we navigate the future, because in all likelihood, we're going to see additional variations of this virus economically, psychologically, for all those reasons. We, we can't keep going through these cycles of, um, oh no, the, you know, we're reopening. No, we're not reopening. We're, you know, we're, Mm. we're, um, you know, the, the boosters work, they don't work. Like we just, we need to find a way to, to move towards a new normal. And that requires kind of a national conversation. I don't see efforts to try to have that conversation yet. Um, I don't see people in a position to lead that conversation at the moment. So thank you for helping us have our part of the conversation. Um, and helping us find our way through the conversations of the day. Uh, Elizabeth, Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for joining us. Merry Christmas. That's Elizabeth Newman. You can find her at Moonshot. We'll be right back. All righty. It is Hanukkah. It is also Advent. It is almost Christmas. Yeah, Dan DeWitt is going to help us walk around in all of that. Hanukkah is, in fact, not Jewish Christmas. We'll be right back. We hear a lot about bullying in school these days, how to recognize bullies, how to stop them, and how to teach our children to face a bully with boldness. But where do these kids learn to be bullies? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. There's only one thing worse than a bully, and that's making the mistake of raising one. Kids learn how to treat people by watching how mom speaks to the cashier at the store, how dad yells at drivers when they cut him off in traffic. These are little instances, but let me tell you, your kids may grow up to be just like you. Is your kid becoming a bully by living with you? Let's make sure we're modeling strength with kindness and conviction with compassion. 
Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org. the Weekend Worldview Reader at Theolatte.com, and we're going to lead off with a conversation about Hanukkah. So, Dan, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? I, I am well. So your um, your reflections on this led me to reflect, um, and I am thankful to God that I had Jewish friends growing up. Like Lori Tepper mm. was one of my best friends in elementary school, um, along with Jeff Wallace. I attended uh, her a bat mitzvah, his bar mitzvah in high mm-hmm. school, Susie Leibowitz, uh, Shaney Edelston. I mean, I had a lot of like, you know, I must have lived in a unique place where there were at least some people openly practicing their Jewish faith because like I remember Hanukkah. I remember Passover. I I went to uh, Shabbat. I mean, like, so um Talk with me about the confusion. I didn't even really know this was an issue, that there are some people who think Hanukkah is the Jewish version of Christmas. Yeah, there was a recent article, I think, with NPR that kind of mentioned the blurring of these lines. And I had a, a, a journalist from a local Fox News station reach out to the university to do an interview and just kind of remind people, hey, they're not the same thing, and to kind of try and merge them together shows an ignorance of really both faiths, Judaism and Christianity, and is kind of obnoxious. And so the interesting thing about the interview that I, is the journalist who interviewed me was himself Jewish. And so um, he was asking me questions which he really could answer far better than I could. Uh, but as I brushed up on the history, I was just reminded um, really of just the fascinating backstory of Hanukkah. And then also um, it, it sent me into the New Testament, into the Gospel of John, where Jesus participates in Hanukkah in, in John chapter 10. And so I found the backstory interesting, and then also this context of which Jesus is um, using the Festival of Dedication, also called the Festival of Lights, also called Hanukkah, as a way of telling people that he is one with the Father and that he is the light of the world. All right, if you guys want to read the whole thing, go to theolatte.com. In this week's Weekend Worldview Reader, you're going to find the article, Hanukkah is not the Jewish version of Christmas. Dan, um, what's the backstory to Hanukkah? So it it goes back over 150 years before the time of Jesus. And unlike a lot of Jewish festivals and rituals, it's not found in the Torah, what we would call the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Maccabees. And the book of Maccabees, along with some other writings, are referred to as deuterocanonical writings. And that simply means— Which is just fun to say. Let's all say that. (laughs) Deuterocanonical. Deuterocanonical. Is that two words or one? You can do it however you want. I think Mm -hmm. think I've seen it, like, well— Canonical, for those of you listening, canonical means it's (laughs) in the list of books that we consider biblical, canonical, in the canon— Deuterocanonical means what, Professor? It means that it goes alongside the canon of Scripture. So it's really esteemed, but it's not seen the same as something that's inspired and revealed from God. And so you might even think about like your Bible commentary. 
you put it alongside your Bible or your Bible notes that are actually, you know, in between the covers of your Bible. Um, it's alongside Scripture, but it's itself not Scripture. And so the Book of Maccabees is that kind of thing. And so highly esteemed, has really interesting history. And in the Book of Maccabees, named after um, a family, a man named Mattathias, who in the second century BC, um, the Jewish people were being persecuted by Greeks. And they, their religious liberty was taken away. The Greeks um, defiled the temple. And so this man named Mattathias had five sons, and he began a kind of guerrilla warfare um, revolt. Um, and, up, uh, you know, um, he, he's going around um, defeating the Greeks so that they could obtain religious liberty. He passes away, and the leadership of this revolt fell to his third-born son, whose name was Judah, whose nickname became the Hammerer, which is Maccabee. And so the story is that they defeated the small group of Jewish soldiers, defeated the Greeks, and they began rebuilding the temple, and they needed a light to do that. And so they um, lit the menorah, and it only had enough oil for one night, and it miraculously lasted for eight nights, which is why your Jewish friends um, celebrate Hanukkah for eight days. Other Old Testament and New Testament passages where we see this kind of um, extension or multiplication, I am thinking about um, oil. Uh, Remind me what prophet am I thinking of? There was not enough oil for bread other than like for a day. Oh, man. You know. I know. See, right. And they were making bread. I know. I know. So there you go. There's all there's all. And obviously, I think the one that comes immediately to mind would be the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes for the feeding of uh, the 5,000 men, plus all their friends um, and loved ones who might have been gathered there as well. So we, um, w- this is, it's like so easy for God, like, right? This is, yeah. this is sovereignty over natural things. And so this is like easy for God, but we are jaw-droppingly um, amazed when God does such things, because I think it's just, it's physical direct evidence of God's presence, his love, his compassion, his mercy, his provision. That's right. Anyway, yeah. it's a great thing. So that is uh, the Hanukkah piece. You guys can find it on uh, Dan's website, theolatte.com, in this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. Let's um, let's do another topic um, while before we jump to um, before we jump to the break, if that's okay. Oh no, sure. let's stick with this topic and then jump to another okay. topic after the break. So. Um, on, what What is the primary confusion? I mean, is it because, you know, Jesus is the light of the world, he shines in the darkness, and therefore he must now be the festival of lights, and therefore Hanukkah must really just be Jewish Christmas? I mean, is that sort of the basis of the confusion? I think it's because they both fall at the same time of the year. And so <laughs> I think that we have, you know, Jewish neighbors who are celebrating Hanukkah. At the same time, we're putting up our Christmas tree. And so some people, because of a kind of a superficial understanding or complete ignorance of both, just merge them together as if somehow they're the same, the same thing. Um, but I, I would encourage people, you know, today, take some time to go read John chapter 10. Um, in verse 22, John records that at the time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, and understand that that is Hanukkah, that that's a feast mm-hmm. that goes back not to the Torah, but it goes back to the book of Maccabees. Um, and Jesus... John records it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. And so here Jesus is telling them that he and the Father are one. And I would imagine 
that there would be some people who would say, oh, this sounds like the kind of blasphemy we heard when the Greeks were taking over. In fact, that's what many of the religious leaders said to him. This is blasphemy. But a theme in John's gospel really is light and darkness. And so at this festival of light, this feast of dedication at Hanukkah, Jesus is showing them that the true light of the world has come so that people can see. And so I would encourage people, one, um, be curious about people who have different customs than you, but then also look into your Bible. You're going to find Hanukkah in the New Testament. Jesus uses it as an occasion to point people to how they could have spiritual sight and no longer walk in darkness. It's a great um, reminder of God's preservation of his people and his testimony throughout history. Um, and it's it is a really, it's just great evidence. The uh, The priestly family of the Maccabees is a would be a pretty interesting story to tell. Um, their successful rebellion against the Seleucid ruler Antiochus IV um, in Judea. I just think that in terms of the restoration of a defiled temple, there's just all kinds of storylines and threads to pull here. If you're looking for, um, you know, a conversation starter that's outside of Scripture, but certainly alongside Scripture in its testimony of God's preservation of His people over time um, in particular places, and to better understand what Hanukkah is all about. Dan DeWitt and I will return in just a moment. I have a little dreidel, I made it out of clay, and when it's dry and ready, oh dreidel. Okay, that's hilarious, the dreidel song. (laughs) All right, from, uh, from Hanukkah to Ghostbusters, that is where we go next right now. Um, what, 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 what are we talking about when we're talking about Ghostbusters? Why are we talking about Ghostbusters today? Who are you going to call? Well, that's right. And so, uh, Carmen and, and, and Dan and Paul, um, and that even rhymed, right? Um, so Ghostbusters just rebooted their movie franchise, totally ignoring the, uh, the remake, um, that came out a few years ago that starred, um, female act- actresses instead of the, uh, the male actors who were in the originals. And it was really, really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, Perhaps because I'm a true child of the 80s, I really appreciated the nostalgia and the throwback. Uh, But it was a reminder of this um, paranoia or fear that there could be something beyond the material world, that there there could be ghosts, mingled with um, this longing for there to be something beyond the material world. And so one of the one of the founding actors of the original movie has passed away. He plays um, e- Egan Spangler. He's a scientist, nerdy, kind of smart guy in the first one. And he's passed away, and this entire movie is in a lot of ways kind of a tribute to him. And so his ghost—I'll try not to give spoilers, Carmen, but his ghost is um, trying to direct his granddaughter to figure out how to defeat the, the ghost. And the title of the movie kind of tells the whole story. The title of the movie is— afterlife. And so it reminded me, one, of our fear that there might be more, two, our longing that there is indeed more than our material existence. And then finally, I think that a movie like this gives us good illustrations to think about the relationship between the soul and the body. And so they use devices and technology to sense the paranormal. And perhaps what if that, you know, machinery were broken? Would that mean that the ghosts are gone? Of course not. It would just mean that the machine itself was broken. And in the same way, Christians may suffer brain damage. They may suffer any number of things. That doesn't disprove the reality of the soul. It just means the machinery of our body is broken. 
And so for me, a movie like this is helpful in all kinds of ways as it relates to worldview and thinking about the Christian view of the soul. It also gives us a great segue into a conversation today um, about the fact that there are uh, there is a sucking soul need to talk about what's going on beyond this life. And even uh, even as the percentage of Americans that confess Christ is, um, you know, is plummeting and we have a growing percentage of the population that describe themselves as none, N-O-N-E, um, the, the raging need to fill that spiritual void with something um, is is right there in front of us all the time. We can have a conversation about the soul, but we could also have a conversation today about Carissa Schumacher. Who is she, and why are we talking about her um, in terms of this conversation about the belief in an afterlife that is not centered in Christ? Yeah, and so I think that this is one of those things where it, it touches on and resonates with us because deep down we know that there's more than what science can tell us. And that's a conversation that, you know, you and I return to often and that you have with many other guests as well on your program because we just know we don't, nobody gets out of bed living for the law of gravity. I mean, that's going to affect everything you do during the day, but no one's living for, you know, the the proposition of what temperature water freezes. Um, we live for immaterial values like friendship and like justice and like beauty and purpose and those kinds of things. Well, if we're living for these immaterial values, maybe there's some immaterial reality that science can't touch. And so somebody like Carissa Schumacher is... Um, she's a, um, a median. She channels the uh, paranormal or claims to, and she makes a lot of money doing it. And so um, I would just say this. I'm reminded of, and before I forget, Chris Pratt, the actor who had his uh, acceptance speech with MTV a few years back. I don't know if you remember that. He surprised people by talking about faith in God at MTV. And he said this in one of his opening lines, you have a soul. Be careful with it. And that speech resonated with people, even in a secular kind of setting, because we know there's more. Some people, um, sadly, I think in this case, Carissa Schumacher, capitalize on that. And she's paid a lot of money to talk to um, the dead and channel them for famous celebrities who pay her to talk to their loved ones who are deceased. Um, she also claims to uh, be the channel, not a channel, uh, but the yeah. channel of Yeshua, which yeah. is the name of Jesus. Um, and she absolutely, well, I don't know if she believes it or not, but she makes $1,111 an hour per client, um, mm -hmm. even in group sessions, um, to quote-unquote channel Yeshua. Um, and the word, so that's an issue. I have a huge problem with that. But the other um, part of this that I want to lift up is the word resonance. As we read the people who are testifying um, to sitting under this woman's spells, um, and apparently she is, you know, spellbinding, that's why they're going. Um, that's why they're gathering together in community, and that's why they're paying $1,111 an hour per person to be with her. Um, mm -hmm. she, she is... Um, She's encouraging them to, quote, find, you know, like find resonance. So, like, take whatever you find that resonates with you and leave everything else. Well, I'm just saying if you're channeling Yeshua, like in reality, then 
It ought to be truth, and it ought to be true truth, mm-hmm. and it ought to be the kind of thing that everyone um, desires to bring their lives into conformity with, not just pick and choose that which resonates with what I already think and feel and want. Like, it's it's lunacy if you unpack it. Well, yeah, and so the idea of confirmation bias is real. You know, we're all going to be kind of drawn to find ways to justify what we want to be true. And so, I, again, I think it goes back to what we said with the Ghostbuster piece, that there's a fear and there's a longing. And someone like Carissa can come along and speak to that and people, and even tell people like, hey, if, if you don't think this kind of fits what you want to be true, just take away from it what seems to resonate with you. What the Christian is saying, to quote Dorothy Sayers, that Christianity is first and foremost a statement about the nature of reality. (laughs) Um, C.S. Lewis spoke to this when he said that the great challenge for Christians is to get our audience to understand we're preaching the gospel not because we think it's helpful, although it is, but because we believe it's true. And so this is a claim that Christians are making about the the nature of reality, and that these aren't just take away what resonates with you, but actually 2,000 years ago, there was a baby born who would grow up and claim to be God and die for our sins. And if you could go back in time, you would see him literally walk out of that tomb three days later. Not just spiritually, but literally. This is grounded in actual historical events. These aren't just what resonates, what feels good. It's rooted in truth. Amen. It's rooted in truth Um, versus nonsense, which, you know, I know that's strong language, Um, but when you read— what, who about Carissa Schumacher and you read what she's doing and you read what people are paying for this. It is evidence that people are spiritually starving. They are seeking um, and they are finding many, many people who are willing to give them what their itchy ears desire. Um, and so we as the people of Christ, we, we just have to press ourselves more and more and more into relationships with people who are spiritually seeking and who are finding falsehood instead of truth. They are finding darkness instead of light, and they're mistaking, um, you know, lies for truth. So, Dan, as always, um, thank you so much for being with us, um, and thank you for helping us see more clearly what is happening in the world and applying our faith to it in positive ways. You guys can read the entirety of the Weekend Worldview Reader at theolatte.com. We'll be right back. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next because we haven't even talked about the fact that today is December the 3rd and therefore we're reading Luke chapter 3 in our Advent devotional reading through the Gospel of Luke. And I have a lot to say about that, so don't go anywhere. We are going to get into the Word of God at the opening of the next hour and then we're going to visit with our friends uh, Adam Holtz and Rebecca McLaughlin. That's up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.